You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. As 2014 comes to a close, the Prime Minister is feeling ragged. Today, the Treasurer tells us he is ratty, and objectively, this week so far has just been very crappy. So, however you're feeling this Sunday morning, uh, or for podcasters at some undefined point in the future, place the part that hurts. Lay any imperfections in your affect right up against the radio, nice and close, and absorb the healing sounds of Radiotherapy's ultimate show of 2014. Over 50 weeks in the making and proudly presented on the world's greatest radio show, Community Radio 3RRR 102.7 FM. 3RRR Welcome to Radiotherapy. I'm Dr. Hawkeye. Uh, Dr. Mellis, welcome. Uh, Hi there. Have we ever needed a Doctor Who Christmas special to transport us back one week in time as much as we uh, have uh, after the last week? What a horrible week. Well, it's uh, part of life and the challenge for us is how do we reconcile this expected season of celebration with the events that actually did happen and are as front page news even today as it's happening. And that reconciliation is in fact the challenge because the expectations around Christmas time for a whole year are about let's get jolly and we call it even the silly season, which is a euphemism for a lot of things that go on under silly. Okay, so let's get silly, maybe. <laughs> well, uh, one of the catch-ups, actually, uh, on a slightly serious uh, note, was how to uh, distinguish between stress and silly. And th- they came up with the Black Dog Foundation and the Australian newspaper collaborated in a survey and gave a score where 10 is most stressful and zero is sort of chilled out. And most people put Christmas around the 2.53 score stress for life events, say. However, some very interesting things come out of the studying of the details. One is that women find it more stressful than men. Uh, The age group 20 to 50 are more stressed than over 50. And surprise, surprise, when you think family is regarded as a protective factor, families with children are more stressed than those without. Now, that means that a lot of us have got expected stresses on top of the silly season and the double S. So silly we can expect, but how do we deal with the stress component? And they, fortunately, in their sort of... um, research paradigm not only score things of how bad they are but also give you 10 points how to relieve them. Uh, I'll condense them. Essentially it says use your mind and use your heart. So your mind you use by becoming thoughtful and actually plan priorities. You won't get everything done by Christmas Day Believe me, it's not humanly possible. So don't even have that expectation because that adds to the stress. So it follows that you do a priority list. Now, don't stress yourself by the list because the idea of the list is to knock off things that you won't be able to do and therefore be less stressed. So this is the mind part. The heart part is really hard. I mean, it's it's so anti-instinct in the lead up to Christmas is actually to take time out to breathe. This is rocket science, people. It's breathing is called inspiration, 
holding it for a second or so, and then slow expiration. Now, they're discovering this. This is all under the umbrella of mindfulness with obviously the neuroplasticity in the background and epigenetics and all that. So what you're saying is it's not rocket science, it's neuroscience. (laughs) Well, some people actually even dare to say it's common sense. Like when people say, you know, chill out, it's just like put your feet up and have a bit of a a, a breezy time. Now... What I'm just wondering is how many of us here in the studio, while we preach this, actually do this? Well, how many people in the studio, first of all, actually do Christmas, Malice? <laughs> now, Christmas, I mean, strictly speaking, should be a spiritual respite. And unfortunately, the commercial side, and this is such a cliche, so whether you do Christmas, Hanukkah, or you're just off school, uh, at the children at home do Christmas break or summer break. And so if we were to reinsert the real meaning, whether again it's Christmas and the religious uh, tradition of turning inward, introspection, it's surprising you actually do have to breathe differently when you're relaxed and introspecting than when you're running around Chadston doing the final bit of shopping. It's just a different autonomic nervous system. Similarly, when you're lighting Hanukkah candles, you know, eight days in row, when you light a candle and look at the flame and see the light and preferably do it in a dark room, you see the amazing effect of light on darkness, which is obviously a metaphor as well, but gosh, if you take a deep breath while you light three, four, five, six, seven, eight candles, amazing, and you actually stand around, let the visual impact come in, you sing a few songs, and we've got an amazing orchestra here, so we'll be hearing, no doubt, some music so this is really, I, I imagine, as uh, you, you're producing this show for the benefit of health, wealth and maintenance, uh, that the listeners will actually be able to breathe beautifully as our orchestra later on will entertain us. Speaking of things that, uh, that make you breathe, Melissa, have you heard of uh, cereal? Have you been on the cereal bandwagon these last uh, 12 weeks? I have not, no. So Serial is this uh, quite incredible production out of, uh, out of uh, uh, the team that bring us uh, This American Life. The, uh, you know, oh, I don't know how many shows we've got on the Triple R roster at the moment, but let's say there are 100. Uh, this American Life and Serial are the 101st and 102nd best uh, radio shows uh, in the world. Um, so Serial is this, this very interesting um, serial radio show that tells one story uh, one week at a time, and it's narrated by uh, one of the... Uh, this American Life team, Sarah Koenig, and tells the story of a murder and the, tri- the associated trial about uh, 15 or so years ago um, of, a, of a US case and has uh, captivated a uh, fairly large proportion of the world in that it's the, the fastest, uh, fastest podcast we've ever reached uh, over 5 million downloads and uh, has uh, given rise to something that certainly hasn't... Uh, hasn't happened for a long time. That's listening parties. Mm-hmm. The people are sitting down and listening oh. to this podcast uh, about this case. And I don't. No one turn the radio off. There will be no spoilers. <laughs> I promise. Though I should warn you that my first show next year may contain many spoilers. So you've only got a few weeks uh, over the summer break to uh, to listen to the twelve episodes. Um, but it's uh, it's quite incredible that I think uh, that this radio show has really captivated people. Has made them slow down mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, concentrate on this case. 
case. In fact, a whole slew of podcasts have actually uh, have actually risen talking about this podcast. Um, it's, it's unusual to uh, to focus on any one thing for this long. Uh, these and, and days. indeed, the very fact that it's a radio listening rather than visual and seeing, and that has got profound implications if we're going to talk about neonatology later on. That in the womb, in fact, our primary sense is one of hearing, not seeing. And so rhythm and music and tonality, harmony, all that we're going to be hearing on radio, this is going to go into the deepest parts, people. This is going to slow down, irrespective of what we're going to be hearing, because it focuses on our oral, oral hearing, rather than the hyper-visual culture that we live in. And maybe this is the turnaround, radio's making a comeback, hey. Uh, radio, we know at Triple R that radio never, never needed to make a comeback. It was always number one. Um, so finally, on Christmas presents and Hanukkah presents and the like, uh, give yourself give yourself a present and listen to cereal over the break. And the other one is uh, take up, consider taking up your two hundred dollar voucher of your love voucher. Now, if you haven't heard about the love voucher, it comes from the Minister of Social Services, one Kevin Andrews. Now, just take a deep breath, everyone. This is two hundred dollars awaiting for you if you've got a large problem, financial problem, parenting problem or sexual problem, $200 vouchers are going for family counselling. There's 100,000 vouchers and for some reason only about 8,000 have been taken up. Now, I don't know how uh, uh, Mr Andrews cannot give away, it seems, $200 vouchers. Something's really funny, but it's in the papers. Another 90,000 vouchers to go. So please, after Christmas, if you've got a bit of a hangover, uh, make the $200 application voucher from Mr Andrews. So if you want some sweet love from Kevin Andrews, get well, in touch with the Department of Social I, yeah, Services. I think he delegates the actual distribution of the love. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. All right, welcome back to Radiotherapy. Uh, in his uh, Nobel Prize uh, uh, acceptance speech, uh, Isaac Bashevi Singer uh, said something that reminds me of uh, really the fact that this is Radiotherapy's most childish show. We've got a child psychiatrist, we've got a pediatrician, today we've got a neonatologist on the panel. Uh, so unashamedly childish. He said, there are 500 reasons why I began to write for children. You might say why I began to be a children's doctor. But to save time, I will mention only 10 of them. Number one, children read books, not reviews. They don't give a hoot about the critics. Number two, children don't read to find their identity. Number three, they don't read to free themselves of guilt, to quench the thirst for rebellion or to get rid of alienation. Number four, they have no use for psychology. Number five, they detest sociology. Number six, they don't try to understand Kafka or Finnegan's Wake. Number seven, they still believe in God, the family, angels, devils, witches, goblins, logic, clarity, punctuation and other such obsolete stuff. Number eight, they love interesting stories, not commentary, guides or footnotes. Number nine, when a book is boring, they yawn openly without any shame or fear of authority. Number ten, they don't expect their beloved writer to redeem humanity. Young as they are, they know that it is not in his power. Only the adults have such childish illusions. So we're now going to go to a great new band, uh, the Bashevis Singers, uh, who are going to sing uh, sing for us today in Yiddish. And we'll hear afterwards. Uh, we'll hear afterwards the story, uh, the story, the translation of this. Song. <laughs> 
Chevy Singers. Uh, so we've got uh, Gideon Price, uh, Husky Gawenda and Evie Gawenda with us in the studio today, the Chevy Singers. Uh, Husky, perhaps, tell us about that song. I think it's actually, uh, it was originally a Russian folk song um, and obviously we sang it in Yiddish. Uh, that's the version we learned growing up, our grandparents um, and parents taught us that song and many other Yiddish songs. And um, it's a song about uh, a, a young man and a young woman, and uh, the young man uh, is testing the woman to see if she's smart enough for him, and she's, and it becomes clear that she's too smart for him. It's an age-old story. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, we'll uh, we'll come back for more by Chevy Singers a bit later, guys. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. So next we're going to go to uh, to Dr. Andrew Watkins, who's a who's a neonatologist we've had on the show before, um, and. Uh, and the topic we wanted to talk about today is is really what happens at the the pointiest end of uh, of uh, one of the uh, most stressful environments you'd have to say in in medicine, and that's uh, that's uh, the neonatal intensive care unit where some of the most vulnerable babies, where the most vulnerable babies are, are looked after. These are babies who are much smaller than they should be, and who are born much earlier than they should be. So, Andrew, just for introduction, for the purpose of introduction. Um, I wanted to ask that if someone uh, had been expecting their their child to be born on Christmas Day this year and unfortunately uh, went into labour a number of months prior to that, perhaps in early October, um, and uh, what's the story of that family's family's evening? Um, How how might things go for a family like that in Victoria today? Well, it can go... a variety of different ways in terms of the practical and emotional ride um, the, the family have often got to make an ad- adaptation to from expecting you know the fantasy as in the baby in four months time where everything goes well and follows the script to suddenly being dropped in a situation where various total strangers are talking to them about um, 
intensive care, what it means, the risks of intensive care, um, and usually a fairly blunt discussion of the chances that their baby will die, the chances that their baby will survive with disability, uh, and perhaps, depending on gestation and circumstance, the choices that they might have to make around that. Um, so, at a site at a psychological sense, it's a massive transition um, and it's for most people the most traumatic experience of their lives. Um, in a practical sense, um, it often occurs against a background of significant overload um, and significant difficulty in finding beds and they may also face you know, dealing with one treatment team initially and then go, having to move to a totally different hospital for treatment. Like, you know, there's the Melbourne neonatal system for a long time and particularly in the last five, you know, four or five years has been significantly overloaded and it's unfortunate that, um, well, it's possibly um, ironic that in Melbourne approaching Christmas there's no room at the inn. Mm. Um, you know, the, we're going through a phase of significant overload and, of course, if there's no room at the inn, sometimes you get the manger and uh, not everybody has re resurrection available to them as an option. Yeah. So, so if, uh, if there is indeed no room at the inn and, um, and thankfully prior to delivering at least uh, a mother can be, um, a prospective mother can be brought to a... Can be brought to a uh, a centre that looks after these very sick babies, but there are no beds for babies. What happens for that baby? Well, we, we try to concentrate care on the tertiary centres because there's evidence that was produced by Victorian research in the 70s and 80s and 90s that if your baby is very premature and is outborn, that the chances that that baby will die or suffer a disability are significantly increased. So there's been a massive focus on in utero transfer because the safest transport ambulance is the mother. Um, when the choice that, that is then faced um, when there is no bed at the receiving unit um, is do you um, make do? Uh, do you uh, transfer the baby to another tertiary unit and sometimes do you transfer the baby out of the state um, and because of the implications for the family of transfer uh, there's often significant pressure you know we feel an emotional pressure not to separate the baby from the mother and move them to another center so there's a tendency to overload um, and sometimes we're forced into it like for example there was a long period um, there's been long periods in the last four or five years when the median occupancy of NICUs in Victoria was around 105 percent um, which in other words um, on at least 50 percent of occasions the units were over their full, over their normal safe capacity, um, which, as one Department of Health person said, well, this of course means that on 50% of occasions they're working below capacity, <laughs> which is a classic example of framing bias and mm. completely missed the point. Um, the so it's a very difficult choice because if you Run, unit, run babies in a unit which is over, overcrowded and understaffed and it, staffing is the critical point 
um, we know that the mortality rate and infection rate goes up and that those, some of those babies, not necessarily the index baby, are at greater risk of suffering um, because of that. We know that intertertiary transfer within, within Victoria is probably not associated with an increased risk to the baby, but it's very traumatic for the family because that often there's not a bed for the mother and they have to make a transition between different treating teams, form different relationships and deal with the separation from your baby at a very fundamental time in that beginning emerging relationship. Um, and sometimes we have to face the prospect of interstate transfer, which is rare for because of the political pressures associated with that. So, so what you, you, you've spoken about transfer a few times. What, what are the, what's involved with, with transferring a baby like this? Well, the Victorian transport system is excellent. It's, well, it's we know it's regarded worldwide as one of the best around. Um, it's um, it's a very integrated service, uh, which is now centralised, but which integrates all of, all of input from all of the tertiary units. Um, if your baby is transferred, it's transferred in a, effectively a mobile intensive care where the baby receives basically everything that he or she would be receiving if they were in, uh, if they were in, you know, in the building, so to speak. Mm. Um, so it's in, in many centres around the world, transfer is ad hoc and a bit of a lash up. But we've been very fortunate for the last 35 years in Victoria that we've had a, a very well organised, very well coordinated, and very and very well equipped transport service. So the logistics of transport are second to none in the world. The main problem is the bed state and the bed and the and finding enough beds enough safe beds for the babies. So, so whose job is that? How, how does this decision that's get made? That's coordinated by the, uh, by the clinicians in the transport service, but when things become more complex, the health department and, and, and administrative types become involved. Mm. And, and what, are the big, what are the big kind of... Uh, I suppose there's, there's lots of conflicts in this situation. What, what are the big conflicts that come up in these, I think, usually early morning discussions? Well, th- the first thing is what do you tell the parents? You know, we we you know we we have we quite rightly place a um, a high value on informed consent. You know, do you tell the parents that there is no bed, you're going to have to go, um, or do you tell the parents that there is no bed for the following political administrative reasons, you have to go? Um, do you tell the parents that? oh, we've got a bed for your baby, and do you explore with them the fact that your baby is the 30th 30th baby in an intensive care that is staffed, equipped, and infrastructured for between 20 and 25, and that that exposes that baby and other babies to risks, or do you just keep strong? So some people, in hearing this scenario, they're... The very quick answer is well, it's easy. You send you send the healthiest baby out, and that you make you make space by by moving the healthiest baby in your unit. Is, is that a, is that a simple solution? Well, we normally require consent from the parents for that. Would you consent to that for your baby? I think it, I think it's a very interesting question. But I wonder whether or not uh, whether or not you've you've consented to to that degree that these resource allocation decisions uh, on the day that you consented to entering this system. 
Well, you haven't had much choice about entering the system, have you? No. Um, the other problem with that, with that argument, and it's one that's run very commonly and has been, you know, a lot of us have been battling with for a long time, is that in order to create the resources, free the resources for a new sick small baby, it's not just a question of transferring one baby. In order to free up enough staff for and enough equipment, etc., for one really sick baby, you'd probably have to transfer two or three, um, which compounds the problem. The other thing is who gets transferred, who gets chosen. Does the um, does the baby of the QC who went to Melbourne Grammar with my boss or with you know with your boss um, get transferred? Or does the baby of the 18-year-old Aboriginal single mother get transferred? You know, and, and there's abundant evidence in the medical literature and disciplines outside neonatology that, um, that gender affects medical care choices and what the care that are offered, that race affects uh, medical choices and the medical care offered. Um, and so we open ourselves up to all of those sorts of uh, biases in choice if we start making choices like that and so it's it's an area I think that most of us have filed firmly in the too hard basket because of partly because of those reasons but it's still you know one of the choices that's being actively discussed mm. so when every when every choice feels wrong how do you make one where do you where do you move uh, how do you do the least take the least worst road the, there's a large element of denial often. You think you go into a bit of a huddle, rely on the judgment and experience of the people at the coalface, and they will often groan and say, OK, we'll make do, and focus on the immediate... Um, on the immediate problem and making the staffing available to lash up some sort of compromise. Um, and, and, you know, because of the skills and willingness of the people to do that, it often works, so far as we know. But we, as I said before, we know that when you do things like that, the error rate, the mortality rate and the infection rate ultimately goes up. Um, and so it, it, it's unsatisfactory. And it's not really explicitly discussed. It's dealt with by doing the best you can on the day and being in denial about, um, about the deeper implications of it. So how do we make things better than that? Um, I think have enough resources and have enough bed and have enough beds and have, I think, probably more open processes. So the hard heads at the Department of Health will probably say that no matter how many beds we have, we'll always face these issues, won't they? Um, there will. This is a classic medical issue, um, in that you know the demands are considerable, but the, but the demands are relatively predictable. Um, the and Victoria has historically been under-provisioned with neonatal beds. There's been an increase in neonatal beds and high-intensity high obstetric beds over the years, but it's always been a process of catch-up and it's never quite caught up. Mm -hmm. um, 
that's because of a number of different reasons. I think the first thing is increased survival. Um, when I first started in neonatology many years ago, um, if you were admitted to neonatal intensive care, you had about, you know, only about uh, a 50 or 60% chance of needing any other bed. These days, if you're admitted to neonatal intensive care, you have about a 95% chance of needing a bed until you were due, um, which means that every neonatal intensive care bed generates demand for more step-down beds. The other thing is, of course, is reproductive choices change and lifestyle choices change and people um, are starting to have babies later when they're at higher risk medically. We're getting more premature babies because of IVF, etc. We're also dealing with a higher risk population who are more inclined to have premature babies. So the risk profile of the population is changing uh, and the birth rate is going up. And the, there was a fairly comprehensive miscalcula miscalculation of Victoria's anticipated birth, birth rate um, four or five years ago, which led to you know, significant under-provision on the maternity front and on the neonatal front. Mm. Malice, any, any thoughts about what, what sounds like a, something that it's almost impossible to kind of for for uh, for the workers as well as the the patients to, to think about. Well, I think that's the critical word that it's almost impossible. And as Andrew mentioned, that many things are not made explicit. And perhaps this is where, uh, and there is no magic wand, I wish there was, but what we know now from the understanding of what extreme stress, overwhelming stress and trauma does to the brains of infants, their parents, and in this situation, and their caregivers, mm. there is more than just denial going on in the moment of crisis uh, where these ad hoc decisions have to be made. There's actually a dissociation, a disconnection. And I'll come to that in my segment because I see some of these children 15, 18 years later with a whole host of adolescent disorders that are never linked back to their two, three months in NICU units and they're mislabeled as uh, anorexia eating disorders, whereas in fact they've never established an eating pattern since mm. their NICU days. So the implications are both the immediate one, as Andrew said, within the coalface, but downstream... 10, 15, 20 years later, and then certainly to adult psychiatric illnesses, uh, very rarely do adult psychiatrists go back to make the link of the dissociation in the NICA unit for the patient. And, of course, the staff uh, have their own risks for burnout and a, a whole range of well-known uh, secondary vicarious trauma issues. Mm. It's a fairly, fairly profound uh, and complicated message for, for, uh, for, for these uh prospective parents, isn't it, Andrew? How, how, do you, how do you get some of that across? One, a lot of listening, because I think you've got to, one's got to take people as they, as they come and deal with the things that are important to them at the start. And, and, and the most important thing is what's going to happen to their baby. And, you, and I think one generally tries to keep the machinations in the background um, out of the picture and I think that's in the first instance um, appropriate um, because they've, they're, the family are usually overwhelmed by their own issues and don't need any more distractions than they've already got. Um, the issue is when it comes to the sharp end when really hard decisions that where the baby where the things are not going to follow the anticipated course and the baby has to move or something like that well I think that that's at that point that there's a need for some pretty brutal honesty 
about what's going on. Okay. So we're going to do some more listening here at Radiotherapy. Thank you, Dr. Andrew Watkins, uh, for a... Uh, for an insight into into the pointy end, the pointiest end uh, of medical care, I think. Uh, so we've got one more track from uh, the Bashevi Singers live in the studio. Uh, what are we going to hear, guys? Um, we're going to sing a Leonard Cohen track, and one of the verses is translated into Yiddish by my mum, Husky and my mum, and Gideon's auntie. So, yeah, we're going to sing that. Excellent. All right. You'll recognise it. Looking forward to it.
beautiful guys just beautiful um, so it's probably hard for, a, for any band or any project to be more personal than one named after yourself um, but uh, Husky uh, this, this project does sound uh, does sound like a really really personal one you've got your sister here, you've got a cousin here uh, is it is it more personal, just as personal? What do you reckon? Um, well, it's 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 very personal. Put it that way. <laughs> um, it, these are the songs. These, the, I mean, not. I mean, this too, that one too. I guess Leonard Cohen. We grew up in as well. But um, these Yiddish songs that we're singing, um, and we're planning to make uh, an album of these songs. These are these are the first songs we all learnt, you know, growing up as, as little kids. And they're, they're, they're the songs that, you know, my, our mum, my and Evie's mum sung to us as lullabies. And um, so it doesn't get much more personal than that. You know, these are the songs we grew up on. Absolutely. I, th- I think uh, you're not singing in three-part harmony. You're singing in 150-part mm-hmm. harmony. And you've got, you've got uh, your grandparents, your parents, and uh, their, all of their parents uh, singing along with you. Mm. That's for sure. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys. Um, we will hopefully squeeze in one more track a little bit later if we can. Three triple R. Can I ask uh, Kate and Alessio from the Waterwell Project to come and uh, join the panel? Um, Dr. Mellis, it's been a it's been a week of trauma, hasn't it? Well. It has been a week of trauma, but the question is how literate are we in the trauma, meaning that events, uh, some journalists have actually called the Sydney uh, experience that we saw as an incident, which I think is a a, a sort of perversion of language to talk about uh, a hostage-taking, murder, siege, and the visual impact as an incident. And I think as a culture, perhaps we're suffering a little bit from trauma illiteracy and we as uh, Andrew mentioned sometimes brutal honesty is the only way we can cope with reality if we're not going to pass it on to generations and so one of the hopes I have is that we'll be encouraging trauma literacy, stress literacy, uh, both in NICU and outside of the hospital setting in our wider culture, because uh, migrant problems, immigration, uh, there's an enormous amount of cultural trauma attached to those experiences. Absolutely. I was going to say as well that certainly as a children's doctor, what happened in, in Cairns yesterday, but also also what happened in Pakistan earlier this week is um, almost... Uh, again, to use that phrase, almost it's uh, it's uh, almost unthinkable, really, to um, to comprehend uh, how, how to cope with those things. And yet, it is up to the leaders and professionals in the mental health field and uh, organisations like we're going to hear to actually give the words to the things we've seen and heard. So, Alessio, on that note, um, I could I could introduce Waterwell, but I th- think you you uh, you'd do a better job. So, so tell us about the Waterwell project. Sure thing, and absolutely great to be here today in the studio. So, the Waterwell project's been around for several years, and we're a non-profit organisation um, with the goal of improving health literacy in our communities. So, we're 100% um, volunteers in terms of what we do in the community, and the way that we organise is we'll have health professionals paired that will go into a community setting um, for recently settled migrants or refugees and will conduct about 
about an hour and a half or two hours topic around a specific uh, health area. Now that could be everything from how to navigate the Australian healthcare system to diabetes, really any health topic that's of interest. Um, and it, one of the things I was thinking about listening to our guest today is it's just so important to listen and also to take into account uh, communities um, that we interact with. So one of the, the things that we do is to try and listen to communities in their own setting and then provide a bit of guidance to them. Hmm. Uh, so, and how long have you been doing this work? Uh, several years. Um, yeah, so we started off as a pilot program. This year we ran 45 sessions with our volunteers. And for which communities are you, are you doing this work? Uh, the communities are very varied. We run sessions from Melton through to Dandenong. Um, the communities might be Iranian or African, really diverse groups of communities. Um, so, so really there's no one set community that we provide the service to. It's very diverse. Okay, Kate, you, um, you run some of the sessions to, to induct volunteers and teach them about, about what they'll be doing. Who, who's putting up their hand to, to get involved in, in a project like this? Uh, we mostly have junior doctors, um, but we also have any allied health professionals. We've got dentists and midwives and um, fifth-year medical students often get involved and then keep doing it um, later on, um, which I find everyone gets their own area that they, they like to help with and... Um, we run different sessions, so um, navigating the Australian health system and there's also, you know, mental health and dental health and all sorts of different things so people can um, find their own interest area. Yeah, how, how, did you, how did you know that, your, that Waterwell was needed at the beginning? That's a, that's a great question because we've been talking a little bit about access today and, and though the, the, the access for water well is quite different from the other topics, really we saw a need that there were people in the community that um, had recently arrived to Australia or might have questions about the Australian healthcare system. But if they didn't present to a doctor or do something like that, they might not have those questions answered. So the need was there for people to go out into the community and, and really educate them. Now the other need that we recognised was that doctors and other health professionals don't always have the setting to go out in the community. They might be working in hospitals or in clinics. So their need was more about how do they translate everything that they've learnt and then relate to people um, in a community setting where they can actually leverage their expertise to um, provide direction and advice without actually giving health advice but just general direction. So the organisation's certainly been uh, getting lots of plaudits and winning awards but what about what about the kind of I suppose the um, the group you'd most likely to get you'd most like to get compliments from, and that's the that's the clients of of Waterwell. Um, how how are they responding? So evaluations are really important to us. So when we are out in the community, we usually run a session with people from about 10 to 15 in a group and we actually take their responses in terms of evaluation surveys. That is really the, the best thanks that we can get. If they say that we've done a good job, our volunteers have done a good job, that's fantastic. The community leaders we also build relationships with over time um, and their feedback is really important to us. But sometimes just for the volunteers as well, a simple thanks can come in unusual ways. So we had one group that the way the, the, the group said thanks was to sing them a song at the end of the session. And, you know, that's a memory that our volunteers have kept with them and that's sometimes the very best way to get thanks. Kate, you might have some, some reflections on that as well. Yeah, I think there's the sort of more formal evaluations, but usually the communities are really grateful and will 
you know talk for quite a while at the end and ask further questions and um, it's a good, it's really good for the health professionals to come and you know interact with people outside the hospital setting and I've found it's really rewarding in that you you know as a junior doctor you think you're going to go out and save the world or you know help save lives and you end up mostly doing paperwork and going out to the community and you know teaching other people what you've learned and they really appreciate it is um, really valuable. Yeah, sounds uh, sounds very satisfying in lots of different ways. Well, in fact, wasn't the original intent of a doctor being a teacher, and this is going back to the basics of what medicine and the health industry, which is an unfortunate name, it's actually a vocation, isn't it? And this is responding to those deepest levels beyond markets and industries to meet suffering and respond to it. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And in our volunteers, I think it's a great level of that we'll have fourth-year medical students, we'll have uh, consultants in very specialised fields. When they're paired up and going out to run a session, everyone is really just educators. Excellent. So what... what what projects have you got on at the moment? What's happening? What's, what's on, the, on the burner? Uh, it's about setting ourselves up for next year at the moment. So we've really stuck to our core mission, which is to provide sessions. So next year our goal is to run 100 sessions in Victoria. We've recently expanded as well to Geelong. So we ran our first induction to Geelong Health Professionals recently, which was really good fun. Um, so next year we want to run 100 sessions and keep growing the organisation to provide our service. Is there any risk in the sense that you're you guys are providing a service that some people might suggest should be provided should be provided by the uh, the country to which an immigrant arrives. Uh, I think, you know, with anything there are considerations. So one of the things that we do very carefully is all of our volunteers go through an induction program with us where we provide a bit of training and we talk about what it's like to run your first session. Um, So we certainly do that and we take great care in that. Um, And, you know, the other thing is that when we're out in the community we really just provide uh, information as opposed to advice. But we're very pleased to be recognised this year um, uh, in some of the awards, so the, the Melbourne Award, we're uh, a finalist uh, in that list, and also we're recognised by um, the Victorian Deba- Department of Health uh, in terms of their refugee and asylum seeker action plan. So even though we're a grassroots organisation, it's very nice to be recognised like that. And one of your founders, I think, is a finalist for, for has been a finalist in the Young Australian of the Year as well. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Dr. Dr. Lenny Fong, she was a finalist several years ago for Victorian Australian of the Year. Okay, and Linny sent her apologies because she's busy uh, busy interviewing for a communications director, ironically, for a, for Waterwell Project that's, that's this morning. That's just Sunday mornings. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Dedication. Okay, thank you so much, guys. We're going to link to your webpage uh, on uh, on the, uh, the Facebook site, the Radiotherapy Facebook site. I want to squeeze uh, uh, Dr. Nellis in, so, but do not move because I'm sure there'll be plenty uh, that's relevant uh, here that you might want to comment on. Go well, for it, Dr. I, I think if we just segue back to your very uh, mission statement, which is to uh, intervene where people are suffering, and going back again to grassroots to the health profession, uh, which as doctor, as teacher, uh, what do children have uh, as their biggest 
issue to learn when they go to school, isn't it about illiteracy? I mean, it's not illiteracy, it's that they still have to learn. Now, what we understand by adult illiteracy is often that adults who cannot read and write and do arithmetic. But when it comes to health, uh, we forget that sometimes there's a generational illiteracy. That is that if parents have been traumatised, and certainly the health profession didn't know about PTSD till it became official in the 1980s uh, DSM catalogue, it's only the last couple of generations that have been uh, sort of born into the culture of knowledge, of literacy, of trauma. Now, 30 plus years later, we can drill right down and go to the basic mechanisms of trauma And even some will now say we're at the behavioural epigenetics level, so it's turning even genetics on its head, 150 years of like Darwinian type of mentality and Mendelian inheritance is being turned on its head that environment can actually be encoded in the epigenetic uh, molecules and transmitted parent to child. So in fact modern day thinking in terms of stress is that the workplace environment is toxic, not now only about what's in the atmosphere in terms of lead and pollution and the climate change issues, but the very human relationships of relational stress is now regarded as toxic. And what I see you doing, in fact, is uh, providing a literacy campaign at the cutting edge where such people, whether they're from other communities overseas or our own indigenous uh, populations, or indeed our own medical and health professions. We are as illiterate as anyone else. And so none of us who grew up as a sort of dinosaurs in the 1980s, 70s, who were educated at that time, knew about PTSD. So we've learned on the job. And we've now then applied those principles both within NICU and other centres in my specialty, child psychiatry, parent-infant relationships. And the continuity is that, in fact, if you open your eyes, those early traumas, PTSD in infancy, complex traumas of both mother and baby. This is not finger pointing at mothers or parents or victimising them, but in fact recognising the condition and therefore offering a dual approach to treatment. The parent requires PTSD treatment as much as the infant and 20, 30 years later, sometimes the adult has to be introduced to their own infancy. Now, this sort of from the traditional psychoanalytic literature was always talked about, you know, the nursery shapes you for life. Well, that's not exactly true. It can shape you, but neuroplasticity says... There's an incredible amount of reversal of trauma. So it's not healing. We've got to be very careful with language. We don't heal trauma. We actually repair the ruptures. And that's what Andrew was talking about earlier, that in the heat of the crisis, things get denied. Now we can add that they also get disconnected, dissociated. Um, I think as far as health literacy goes, it's hard enough growing up in Australia to know how to navigate the Australian health system and when to go to a GP, when to present to emergency. Um, I can't imagine coming from overseas and being a refugee and having English as a second language, how foreign and difficult it would be. 
Absolutely. Um, it's, been a, it's been a big year, hasn't it, Melis? Look, if we look back over the year, uh, we really, it's, this week it's pretty hard to keep it in perspective of some of the incredible ups that we've also had. Um, I, I don't want to trivialise the scope of the year because there have been some incredible achievements, incredible downs, uh, but if um, uh, one of our previous anchors was here, I would just have to tease her and say, and of course part of it was Hawthorne's second premiership but it's not for me to say. Excellent. Well thank you to all our listeners for being on board with Radiotherapy this year. It's, it's been a, a healthcare program, not a religious program. <laughs> 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 uh, it's, been, it's, it's been a wonderful year so thank you, thank you for being on board everyone um, and especially to our subscribers uh, who got on board during Radiothon. Uh, it's not too late to get behind Triple R so get behind a wonderful station Get on and get online and get behind the Waterwell Project. Just Google Waterwell Project and you'll find them and um, get in touch and get on board. We're going to go out with a track from uh, from the Vashevi Singers uh, and uh, and it's actually the first track of our of our radiotherapy end of year party. So uh, if uh, if we fade out uh, uh, to go to the scientists, it's because uh, we're dancing and uh, enjoying enjoying the uh, the music so much. Okay, uh, here are the Vashevi Singers. I love to listen to the sounds of 
Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3 Triple R, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.